Thank you for your singing. And if you're wondering why our singing and stuff was a little bit different this morning, only having two songs and stuff, that is because, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the year, whenever we observe the Lord's Supper, as we are today, we're going to do things a little bit different just to try and emphasize the meaning of the Lord's Supper more and to try and uh, make it a richer and deeper experience for us. And so what we're trying today, what we're doing, we had two songs at the beginning, but and my message hopefully will be a little bit shorter, and then we'll have more of an extended observation of the Lord's Supper, where we'll be praying and singing while we partake of the elements and things like that. And I'm praying that as we do that, as we make those changes from what we normally do, then it will help us to have a, a deeper understanding of the meaning, the significance of the Lord's Supper, and to have a richer experience of God's grace and as, we, as we observe it. So for today, we're going to be taking a break from our series through Ephesians, and we're actually going to be in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 15 is where we're going to be today. We're going to be looking at Mark's account of the crucifixion. And if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs, Mark 15 is on page 1535. 1535. So we're going to be looking at Mark's account of the crucifixion today. And we're not going to read the entire passage right now. We'll read it as we go throughout the message. But what better place to start an um, emphasis on the Lord's Supper than a passage that describes exactly what the Lord's Supper is all about, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, His suffering in our place. So let's go ahead and we'll see the big idea, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump into the passage. So this passage simply shows us that the Son of God suffered physical agony, shame, abandonment, and death for us so that we would worship Him. The Son of God suffered physical agony, shame, abandonment, and death for us, so that we would worship Him. Let's pray. Lord, the things that we are going to look at today are the most significant serious, important matters in all of history. That You, the Son of God, would come to this earth and live a sinless life and die in our place with unimaginable suffering. That You would shed Your own sinless blood to pay for our sins. Truly, as Mark says, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Help us to understand more of what that means today. Give us a sober sorrowful yet joyful awareness of the sufferings that you endured on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for what we are going to look at. And I pray that you would help me to proclaim these things clearly and accurately that you would help me to remember what has been prepared, that the gospel would go forth clearly and would, uh, would deepen our faith in you, would enrich our love for you and our worship of you, and that you, above all things, would be glorified because of what you did for us. And we pray this in your holy and worthy name. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage about Jesus' sufferings for us, that is 
the major emphasis is that the Son of God suffered for us. And what kind of suffering did He go through? Well, first of all, He suffered physical agony. Look at verses 16 through 25. Jesus has just gone through these unfair mock trials. Pilate has condemned Him to be crucified. He has been flogged, which is where they take a cat of nine tails, a leather whip that is embedded with shards of metal or bone, and they would slap him across his back numerous times till his back was just shredded. And then look at verse 16, what it says they do after that. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. So Jesus has been flogged, and here we see that he is beaten. And because of his flogging, because of being whipped repeatedly with this cat of nine tails whip, his back would have been so shredded and so tender that even taking off and on his clothes like they do here would have been severely painful because of the exposed skin on his back. And then they add to it by putting on a crown of thorns. And we've and when Angie and I were in Israel, they still make these that you can buy as souvenirs, and the thorns really are that long. Can you imagine having something with those sorts of thorns just even sitting on your head would hurt? And yet they put it on him, and they take a rod, and they beat it into his head. They smack him with this stick over and over again. And they spit on him. Hail, King of the Jews! Smack! Bow down to the King of the Jews! Absolutely awful. Unimaginable pain. But they're not done with him yet. They take him out to crucify him. And when it says that he was carrying his cross, most likely this was just the, the cross piece of the cross, the horizontal piece. But at this point, Jesus is so weak. He has been drug around all over Jerusalem through the night without sleep, He's been beaten severely. He's lost so much blood that he cannot carry this piece of wood. And so they have to ask someone else to carry it in his place. And they get this man, Simon of Cyrene, to help him carry the cross. And they take him to this place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. We don't know exactly where that was in Jerusalem today, some people think it might be this hill, and what they would have done is they would have carried Jesus, or Jesus would have gone up here carrying the cross with Simon up to this hill, and they would have crucified him at the foot of this hill, kind of where those buses are parked. That's one possible place where this could have happened. And we don't know the significance when it says that they gave him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. We're not, commentators aren't exactly sure what that means. There's a chance that it was a sort of painkiller. 
that they were trying to give him and he refused it because he needed to experience the fullness of this pain and suffering for our sins. And then they crucified him. It's a very short statement in the Bible simply saying that they crucified him. But what does that mean? It's, it's loaded with significance. And writing to a Roman audience, Mark's readers would have fully understood what he was talking about. They would have laid Jesus on the cross, on the ground. They would have taken the nails and the hammer and driven them through his wrists and his feet and nailed him in place on the wood. Then they would have raised it up and dropped it in place in a hole in the ground and he was hanging there. And when someone was hanging in that position on the cross, they could not breathe. They had to push up and pull up in order just to get a breath. And that's why a lot of times when people were crucified, it took them days hanging there to suffocate and die. They would hang there and eventually over days and days of pushing themselves up and down just to get a breath, they would get so weak that they couldn't do it anymore and they would die because they couldn't breathe. And with each push, trying to get each breath, the wood of the cross would have been digging, digging, digging further and further into Jesus' already pulverized, shredded back. This is one of the worst, if not the worst, forms of execution ever invented in human history. And that's why it was reserved only for the worst of criminals and for slaves. It was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. You were protected from it because it was so bad. And it was so gruesome that people actually did not talk about crucifixion in polite company. It was not a normal topic that would be brought up in conversation because it was so offensive. And yet if you read Mark chapter 15, he puts the words in here for cross and for crucify 11 times to drive home the reality that this is what happened to the Son of God, to our Lord and Savior. And every time that Mark's readers would have read those words, that painful truth would have been driven into their hearts, just like the nails were driven into Jesus' hands and feet. That because of our sin, the Son of God was crucified. He was beaten, He was nailed to a cross, and He suffered an unimaginable pain as He hung on the cross in our place. But that's not even all. Physical suffering was not the only thing that Jesus endured for us. He also suffered shame. Look back at verses 16 through 20. It says, the soldiers led him away into the palace, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. So Jesus is being mocked here by the soldiers. They're pretending to salute him as the king. Hail, king of the Jews! And you can just hear their laughter as they're saying this. Ha, he thinks he's the king of the Jews. Let's bow down to him. Now let's smack him across the face. It's pure mockery. And if you look down in verses 24... Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. What shame. 
that they stripped him and hung him on this cross naked for everyone to see as they walked by. And as they walked by, look what they do in verses 29 through 32. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. Can you imagine that? Being beaten so severely, hanging, being executed on this cross, and the people show no pity, no mercy. Instead, they just mock him. They pile on the insults and the shame. And even the criminals, the ones who deserve to die, even they, the lowest of the low, mock him. They mock the Son of God. And there is such irony in what they are saying. They say, He saved others, but He cannot save Himself. Let Him come down so that we can see and believe. Well, they're saying true things. If Jesus did come down from the cross, He couldn't save us. He had to stay on the cross in order to save us. But they're saying it in jest. They're mocking Him. And they say that if Jesus comes down, oh, if he, if he rescues Himself, then we'll believe in Him. No. They've already proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that they will not believe. And that's not true faith anyway. Faith trusts in Christ even when it can't see or when it can't understand. True faith trusts in Jesus even when what it does see is Jesus being mocked and killed on a cross. They have proven they will not believe. So Jesus suffered shame. He, he was mocked. And as we mentioned, He was hanging there naked. I don't want to be crude, but we do have to realize that most often when people were crucified, they were naked. The pictures that we see with the loincloth on, that is to protect our sensibilities. It was typical for them to be naked, and it says that they took his clothes and they actually exploited Jesus' nakedness for their own personal gain because they gambled over his clothes to see who would take them. And beyond that, Jesus was considered a criminal. Look at verses 26 and 27. It says, The inscription of the charge written against him was, The King of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Now when they put this sign on Jesus' cross that says, The King of the Jews... In their minds, they're not really identifying who he is. They're charging him with crime. They're using this as the accusation against him that makes him worthy of death. He really is the king of the Jews. But they're saying, no, you're just a false upstart king. You're trying to rebel against Rome. You're trying to overthrow Caesar. And because of that, you need to die. They're calling him a criminal. And they hung him between two other criminals, two robbers. People who had been involved in an actual revolt, who had helped murder people. And anyone who had walked by those three crosses would have just looked at them and thought, yep, there's three guilty criminals. They deserve to die. And so the sinless Son of God is being shamed here by being called a criminal, by being associated with true criminals. 
The Son of God has suffered immense physical agony. Immense shame that we really can't even begin to fathom. And yet His suffering still is not over. He also suffered abandonment. Look at verses 33 and 36 where we see that He was abandoned by His Father. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. So Jesus has been hanging on the cross for three hours now. Three hours of pulling himself up just to breathe, having the wood scrape his back, three hours of people mocking him, and then there is sudden darkness in the middle of the day at noontime. Darkness comes over the land. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you would understand that this is a sign of judgment from God. That when there is unexpected darkness, it is a sign that God is pouring out His wrath, His judgment in some way. And as Jesus hung on the cross, that is what happened. Over the next three hours, Jesus experienced an eternity of wrath and hell in our place from the Father. And as this happens, He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this isn't just a question of, why are you doing this? I don't understand. He's actually quoting Psalm 22. This is intentional. And we'll get to the significance of it at the end of the sermon. But the reality is that in that time, in some way, God the Father looked on His Son on the cross with displeasure, with wrath, and He did turn His back on Him because Jesus has had taken the sin of the world on His shoulders. And of all the suffering that Jesus faced that day, this would have been the worst by far. Being abandoned by His own beloved Father, whom He had known and loved for all of eternity, where they had forever existed in the closest union, where they had never been separated. We can't really fathom the anguish that Christ would have felt at His Father turning His back on Him like this. You could imagine if after this service or someday out in the street, a, a random stranger just comes up to me and says, I hate you. I hate everything that you do. I never want to see you again. I'd be shocked, but if it's a random stranger that I've never met, I'm going to just say, okay, maybe they had a bad morning. But what if after the service, one of you that I know, that I love and care about, comes up to me and says that, I hate you, Zach. I hate everything about you. I never want to see you again. That's going to hurt. That's really going to hurt. But what if Angie came up to me and she said, Zach, I hate you. I never want to see you again. I hate everything you're doing. Goodbye. Okay, that's going to be the worst of all. And that's just a tiny, tiny fraction of what it would have felt like for the Son of God to be abandoned by His Father. They had known and loved each other perfectly 
for all of eternity. And now for the first time ever, that love is separated. That love is cut off between them. Unimaginable. But Jesus didn't even have human followers to help him either. He was abandoned by his father. He was abandoned by his disciples. Mark has already told us about this earlier in the book, in chapter 14, but he implies it again in verses 40 and 41. It says, There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. So Mark has told us that the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane fled from Christ. They abandoned him. And here, there's no hint of them. They're absent. There's just these women that up to this point have not even been mentioned in the book of Mark. And so it only highlights, it only emphasizes that Jesus' disciples are absent here. Now we do know that in other gospel accounts that there were a few disciples, John namely, who were there watching the crucifixion. But Mark leaves that out on purpose because he wants us to feel how utterly alone Jesus is. One scholar commented and said that Mark's account of the crucifixion is the loneliest in the Bible. Jesus is all alone, abandoned, suffering agony and shame for us. And then finally, he suffers death. Look at verse 37. It says, Jesus let out a loud cry, and breathed his last. So this loud cry from Jesus would have actually been very unusual. Remember how we said that people died when they were crucified. They couldn't breathe, and so they eventually got weak enough that they just suffocated, asphyxiated on the cross. They weren't crying out. They were gasping for breath. But Jesus here raises himself up one last time, cries out, and is dead. And Mark shows us this unusual death, but he actually provides two scenes later to confirm, yes, Jesus really did die. He didn't just pass out on the cross. He actually died. Look at verses, verse 40 again. <clears throat> There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. And so this scene is like Mark saying, okay, you don't believe he really died? Go ask these women. They were there. They saw it. They saw him die. And again, this is unusual because in Jesus' day, a woman's testimony didn't even count in a court of law. It didn't count as legal testimony. And yet, these are the very people that Mark chooses to put in here as the witnesses of Jesus' death. And that's because throughout Mark, one of his major themes is that God's purposes move forward through weakness through unexpected ways, not through worldly wisdom or worldly strength. God uses the unexpected things for his plans. And so again, in verse 42, we see another unexpected thing happen. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. 
When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. And so here, Jesus' burial is also very unusual. That look at what Joseph is a part of, the Sanhedrin. That's the very council that condemned Jesus to die. They're the very ones that had him arrested and took him to Pilate to be crucified. And so we would never expect one of those people to care for Jesus' body after his death, but that's exactly what happens. And instead of Jesus being thrown in a criminal's grave, he's actually buried in a very nice tomb from a wealthy man. Now again, we don't know exactly where this was. We have an idea of what it would have looked like. This is one of the sites in Jerusalem where they think that Jesus might have been buried. You can see the the entrance there and then the, the round part where they would have rolled the stone. It probably wasn't quite that big, but they would have rolled it in front of the door. And as you step inside, there's just a little stone slab off to the right where they would have laid the body. And that's where Jesus was buried, in a tomb like that. And these scenes, Mark is including these, They're almost like a death certificate to say, yes, Jesus really did die. Here's the proof. If you don't believe what I've written, go talk to Joseph. He buried the body. Go. You can even talk to Pilate. You can even talk to the centurion soldier. Centurions were expert killers. They knew if Jesus was dead or not. And so Pilate would have called him in, and the centurion says, yes, he is dead, and they bury him. These scenes are certifying that Jesus really did die for us. Not just suffering, as bad as that was. He died. He really died. And that is what the Son of God suffered for us. That is what he went through in our place. It wasn't an accident. It was purposeful. That is why he came to earth, was to die for us. It was God's plan to provide our salvation. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, I urge you to. It is the only way through faith in this beaten and crucified Messiah who rose from the dead afterwards to be your Savior. He is the only way to escape your sin and the wrath of God. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, as we understand the suffering that Jesus went through for us, you realize that He has suffered everything that we could suffer. Everything possible that we've been through, Jesus has been through it in one form or another. Do you suffer from physical pain? So did Christ. He knows what that is like. He knows how to help you through that. Do you suffer from some form of shame in your life? Maybe people mock you for your faith, or they try to tell you that what you believe is foolish. That happened to Jesus too. He knows how to comfort you and strengthen you through that trial. And I want to be careful here, but perhaps sometime in the past, even your nakedness was taken advantage of 
just like Jesus's was, he knows what that's like. He can help you. He can give you the grace to overcome that shame. Run to him. Perhaps people have told lies about you the way they did Christ. He knows how to comfort you and strengthen you. Or maybe someone that you cared about turned on you. They abandoned you. Just like happened with Jesus. Run to Christ. He was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. He knows what you feel, what you experience in those sufferings because He Himself has suffered it. And He knows how to help you. And even the greatest of sufferings, death, Christ has been there. And He has come out on the other side victorious. So we need not fear even death when we trust in Christ. So the Son of God suffered physical agony, shame, abandonment, and death for us. But it didn't stop there. He did it for a purpose. Yes, to save us, but also ultimately so that we would worship Him. That's what Mark points us to in this passage. Now, unfortunately, worship is not the only thing that Jesus' sufferings produce. It should produce worship in everyone, but it actually produces two things. The first is scorn. We won't take time to read these passages again, but we've seen how as Jesus suffered, people mocked Him. They made fun of Him. The soldiers, the Jews who passed by, the chief priests, they said, some Messiah you are. Some King you are. And they mocked him. They looked on his sufferings with scorn. They had the idea that might makes right. Our king, our Messiah, our Savior needs to be powerful. He needs to come in triumphantly and defeat Rome and take over. We don't want some weak, foolish guy who lets himself die on the cross. That's how they looked at it. And many do that today. They think, ah, Jesus was just some guy who lived 2,000 years ago. Yeah, he was influential. I'm never going to believe that. That stuff's just foolishness. The Bible says that that's how the world looks at the gospel. It's foolishness to them. And they mock it and they look at it with scorn. But for those of us who trust in Christ, It produces worship. And again, we see this happening in the most unlikely of people. Look at verses 37 through 39. It says, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So when it says in verse 38 that the curtain of the temple was torn in two, that is very significant. The way the temple was built, there was the first section, then there was this huge curtain that divided the first part of the temple from the inner part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, signifying that we can't have direct access to God. Our sin separates us from Him. And when Christ died, that curtain tore in two. And that was pretty much impossible. That curtain was about as thick as your hand and about 60 feet tall. 
There's no possible way it could have torn in two from top to bottom unless God did it. And so it was signifying that that barrier has been removed and anyone who approaches God through the sacrifice of Christ can come to Him and worship. We have access to God through faith in the sacrifice of Christ. And immediately when this happens, when Jesus cries out and He dies and the curtain is torn, the centurion of all people praises Him. Truly, this was the Son of God. Why in the world would a Roman soldier who is killing him do that? Only by the sovereign grace of God. Only by God working in his heart. This is so unexpected. He's a Roman soldier. He's not a Jew so he wasn't even looking for the Messiah to come. He's the one putting Jesus to death. If you're executing a criminal, you usually don't end up praising or worshiping that person. And it's Jesus' death that brings this response out. It's not Jesus triumphantly rescuing himself from the cross, and the soldier's like, wow, that guy's cool. No, Jesus dies. And the soldier says, truly, this was the Son of God. And that was a dangerous statement for him to make because that title, the Son of God, was reserved for only the Roman emperor if someone else heard him say that, he could have lost his job, if not his head. But Mark includes this here very significantly. It ties together the entire Gospel of Mark. Because the very first verse of Mark says that this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here at the end, we have a Roman soldier declaring that Jesus is the Son of God as He's being crucified, as He dies. And so Mark's whole point in this is that he wants us to understand too, Jesus is the Son of God. He suffered and died for your sins. Trust in Him. Worship Him. Just like they're doing here. Now, why would Mark point us to worship as the response that we should give to Jesus' sacrifice? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. I want to point out three. Three big reasons that Mark says we should worship Jesus because of His sacrifice. And the first is simply that worshiping the suffering Son of God is appropriate. It's just the right thing to do. Jesus did not deserve to go through this. He did not deserve to die. He had never committed a single sin. But He went through it for us. What love! This was the greatest act of love possible. His death alone makes atonement for our sin. Only His shed blood can wash away our sin. Only His death makes it possible for us to have access to God and to truly worship Him. It is more than appropriate that we worship Christ for suffering in our place. Secondly, worshiping the suffering Son of God is a paradox. We see this in the fact of what we just looked at, that a Roman soldier, the most unlikely of people, is the one who confessed that Jesus was the Son of God. And he did this at his death, not at some miracle that Jesus performed. And if you've 
paid attention, this is a theme throughout this passage. Think about all the irony, all the paradox that we've seen in this passage. To save others, Jesus must not save Himself. The King of the Jews is considered a criminal. The Son of God was forsaken by His Father. The Son of God suffers and dies. It's Jesus' death not His power that brings about worship. A Roman centurion confesses the truth while the Jewish religious leaders mock it. The disciples are nowhere to be seen while these women that Mark has never mentioned before are the ones who stay faithful. And Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, is the one who buries Jesus while the disciples are still absent. And so when we worship Christ in the midst of these paradoxes, these things that just don't make sense, these things that seem so opposite the way that we think or the way that the world works, when we worship Christ in those times, it really demonstrates our faith. When things happen according to God's plan or God's word, and we think, well, that's just not how the world works. That's just not the way I think. That's backwards. But we trust God anyway. It shows our faith. We worship Him in the midst of these. And all this irony shows what I mentioned earlier, that God's plans, His purposes move forward not through the ways that we would expect, not through wealth or worldly wisdom or social influence. That's most often not how God chooses to advance His plans. Most often, He advances His plans through weakness, through things that the world looks at and mocks. So if we as Christians find ourselves in a position in our context or in America where we have zero social influence or where we are persecuted for our faith, we can trust that that is part of how God advances His kingdom. That is part of how God advances His purposes. You do not need to have a lot of money or to have a lot of social status or to have a lot of political influence in order to advance God's kingdom. That is not how God chooses to do things. Most of the time, those kinds of things, the celebrity Christianity, is actually harmful to what God is doing. Most often, God advances His purposes through weakness and through suffering. And that would have been very significant for Mark's readers because they were being persecuted for their faith. But Mark is telling them, stay faithful. Don't give in because God is using your suffering for something greater than you can ever imagine. And to us, that might not make sense, but that is how God works. Thirdly, worshiping the suffering Son of God allows us to follow His example. When we worship Christ, we become like Christ. And that enables us to follow His example when we suffer. And what did He do when He was suffering here? Well, we mentioned earlier that He cried out to His Father the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was a cry of pain, a cry of despair, but ultimately it was a cry of hope and of trust in God. Why would Jesus call out to His Father if He knew that His Father had finally and fully forsaken Him? Jesus knew that His Father would ultimately rescue Him, and so He cried out to Him in trust. And that's why He intentionally quoted Psalm 22. We don't have time to read that entire psalm. It's pretty long. 
But it begins, the first verse of Psalm 22 is that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as it goes through, it works its way from despair to hope, to trust in God. This was a common Jewish practice, actually, that they would quote the first line of a psalm or of a chapter in the Old Testament. And by doing that, they were referring to the entire chapter. And Jesus, as he's can barely breathe on the cross, he's not going to recite the entire psalm. So he cries out the first line, but he's referencing the entire thing. It's pain, it's despair, and it's hope, and it's trust. Jesus is modeling for us here the biblical practice of lament that we see so often in the psalms. When we experience this pain, this suffering, we we can cry out to God in that pain. He wants us to bring our pain to Him, to cast ourselves on Him. And as we do that, we move from that despair to hope, to trusting in God. And as you worship Christ, it allows you to follow that example when you suffer too. So the Son of God suffered physical agony, shame, abandonment, and death for us so that we would worship Him. Are you trusting in Him as your Savior? Do you worship Him because of His sacrifice for you? Trust Him Worship Him. That is what His sacrifice calls us to. And that is what we will be doing as we observe the Lord's Supper in just a moment. So let's pray. Jesus, Your suffering on our behalf is unfathomable. There's so, there's infinite depth to this that we could look at. But I pray that this overview of what you suffered for us would really be planted deep in our hearts. That we would be moved to trust you and to worship you because of what you did for us. Lord, thank you. Truly, what else can we say? Thank you. So as we remember your sacrifice, please do bless this time. And may you be honored in our worship. In your name we pray.